Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Please take your Bible and turn with me to the 138th Psalm. We've already read together from the 139th Psalm. Perhaps you kept your place there. And we will be referring to a degree to that Psalm, which is better known really than the 138th. But the 138th Psalm will serve as the basis for the morning message. Psalm 138, 1 reads, as follows, I give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word according to all your name. On the day I called, you did answer me. You did make me bold with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth, and they will sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is exalted, yet He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand will save me. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Have you ever wondered why you're here? I'm not talking about being in this room at this moment, or why you're living or visiting in El Paso, but why are you here on earth? Are you an act of creation by the one true God or are you an accident of nature? Today we're going to consider why we're here. And we're going to assume that the only opinion that matters as to why you or I or anyone else is here is God's opinion. And He clearly spells it out for us in His Word. We've already read from the book of Isaiah, in the 43rd chapter, and there's one line in the seventh verse which says, we have been created for His glory. That's the overarching reason as to why we're here. We have been created to bring Him glory. We were created the second time if we know Christ, and in so being created the second time, we have the power to glorify Him. None of us can glorify God until we have settled the issue that exists between us and God. That issue being the issue of sin which separates us from God. Have you ever stopped to think about why God created Adam and Eve? In the Bible, the Bible tells us in the first chapter of Genesis that He created Adam and then later Eve in his own image. He gave a responsibility to Adam to give rulership over the creation, 
to care for it. Also, giving him a wife, Eve, together, they were to propagate the species. And they were to be a completion of the picture of God who created them both male and female in His image. And then sin entered the world through Adam. And through that one man, Adam, death. And though these people initially were created to live an indeterminate length of time, their sin separated them from God. This is why Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I never had any trouble as a boy and even into my young life as an adult understanding all have sinned. I am a sinner. I know that I sin. And it was not hard to deduce that other people around me were sinners too because we were selfish. The essence of sin is selfishness in its expression. The foundation of that sin is that we don't depend upon the Lord. The Bible says, whatever is not from faith is sin. That's the real root of sin, a lack of faith, a lack of belief. But I puzzled. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, or it didn't, it does now, where the Scripture says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It makes sense because we were created for the glory of God. Do you understand this? Maybe not as much as you might understand when we finish delving more deeply into the Scripture for answers to how to glorify the Lord. But nevertheless, we're created to glorify the Lord and our sin prevents that. And we need to understand how with the help of the Holy Spirit we can begin to live that life out individually as well as a church. The glory of the Lord we sang about it in the 9 o'clock worship service. Be glorified in the heavens, on the earth. Be glorified in your temple. You know that beautiful song. It's more contemporary. Be glorified in your temple. And I immediately, I hadn't even thought about it. I'd already preached a sermon last night on this same passage of Scripture. And I hadn't even thought about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. What? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Therefore glorify God in your body. If you know Jesus Christ, you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. And that Holy Spirit of God wants to glorify God in you and through you. Individually. We know, however, that the whole is the sum of the parts. And in 1 Corinthians 3, he's already spoken about this as we've seen in 1 Corinthians 6.19, but prior to that, in 1 Corinthians 3.16, he talks about the collective body of Christ. All of us, this body of believers, when we gather together, if we are under the auspices of the God, the Holy Spirit, and we submit to Him, He is living in us, and He glorifies Himself through us. 73 of the Psalms, of the 150 Psalms that we have in our Bible, are credited to David, King David. What a man. We know what his life was like as a boy. 
And if we follow him, we see him as an incredible hero, warrior. He is a musician. He was also a king. And he was a father. He failed in his marriage. He stole another man's wife. In an attempt to cover it up, he had him murdered. And in order to get him murdered and not to be suspected of setting him up for murder, he sent 30 other valiant and also deeply committed soldiers committed to the king and the wife of this woman Bathsheba, Uriah, who was not even a descendant of Abraham. He was a Hittite. He was a pagan, but he was so loyal. He sent them into the battle, put them by order of the, the general of the armor, army, go right up to the closest, hottest part of the battle so they will surely be killed. And in fact, that's what happened. We follow his life. His life is described as a life of a person whose heart was after God. It's a high compliment which is paid. The Bible actually says that there's only one area or one episode or one era in his life that he did in fact go against the Lord. And we've just talked about that. But he was perfect, the scripture says, in every way except in that particular arena. But he was a sinner, wasn't he? We get, get some encouragement from this psalm, but also from what we read in Isaiah earlier. Sam focused on it in his reading when he said, I really like that part where it says, I have called you by name. You are mine. That's who we are if we know Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, God says through the prophet, you are precious in my sight. I love you. And even when you have trouble, he goes on to say in that passage, when you're going through the water or when you're going through the fire, I'm with you. Do not fear. I'm with you. Do not fear. I love you. I'm caring for you. We looked last week at James chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 and learned that the Bible teaches us who know Christ. It teaches us that we are to consider it all joy when we encounter all kinds of problems. That's hard, isn't it? David was no stranger to problems. When he was a little guy, probably a preteen, into his teen years, he was given more and more responsibility to tend the flock of his father Jesse, seven older brothers. Do any of you have seven older brothers? Can you imagine having seven older brothers? Unbelievable. Tough life if you're number eight. Wow. And I'm sure he was just a nuisance to them. Every time they turned around, he was under their feet. Every time they were trying to have a conversation with a, a young lady, he was there. It was that kind of a nuisance? And that shows up when he's sent by his father, Jesse, to bring food to them when they were getting ready to join the other members of the army of Israel to face off with the champion of Philistia, this man known as Goliath, over nine feet tall, scary to say the least, and he brought some food 
for his brothers as well as his brother's commanders. And what they say, what are you doing, little guy? You're at it again. You're always up to no good. Get out of here. Go home. Well, thank God he didn't listen. And thank God that he presented himself to Saul when none of the other soldiers, these were grown men, including his brothers, they didn't have the guts to step forward and say, I'll take him on. And here this little shepherd boy shunned the armor and the weaponry of King Saul. There were only two swords in the whole army of Israel. Read about it carefully. One of which belonged to the king. And he took the armor and he said, hey, King Saul, this just doesn't work. I'm sorry. The only thing I know how to use is my sling. I've killed bears and I've killed lions with it. I'm pretty good with it. I think God will help me to kill a giant with it. So he goes out and he faces him off in that field, that valley, and he says, I come to you in the name of the Lord God of hosts. And you're dead meat, Goliath. That's not exactly what he said, but that's really what he said. And so he took him on. It was his high, high point for him, wasn't it? Awesome. Unbelievable. It also began his demise, I think. The Scripture doesn't say that, but I think it was the beginning of a bad path that he tread that led to his big mistake. And it was also the beginning of his being hated by Saul, the king. Because after this great victory was won over the Philistines, what happened? They're going back to headquarters. And as they're walking back, this triumphant army, they're walking back, they're heroes. And at the head of the bunch were Saul and beside him, or maybe a step or two behind him, was David. And what were they singing? What were the maidens singing? Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. We all have a Saul lurking in us, if we're honest. We don't mind people getting accolades or attention just as long as we get at least as much or a little bit more. Isn't that true? We want the limelight. And that was a bad day for David in the sense that from that day forward, Saul had it in for him. He was so insecure, he was trying to do him in. And then I think all these women fawning over him was just too much for David. And, and he probably was plagued by temptation going forward, which culminated in what we talked about earlier, several years later in this affair he had with Bathsheba. But what we do know is, as a rule, this man sought to honor the Lord. And we take no joy in his sin. It's no license for us to say, well, David did it, so we could do it. It's not that at all. But in a sense, when we see the biblical characters presented without any varnishing, we see them as they really were. It gives us some encouragement when we fall. That we can get back up if we do what David did. When confronted with our sin, we confess it. And we repent it. He didn't try to hide it after he finally came clean. For a whole year, he probably did. Read Psalm 32 and 51. But here in this psalm, we see him giving glory to God. And he gives us a pattern for this. 
It's not all-inclusive, but it gives us a place to start. And if we learn to apply what this passage teaches with associated passages, we're going to be a long way down the pathway of fulfilling our purpose here on earth. He begins by giving thanks to the Lord. The Bible says in the Psalms, the Lord is magnified by our thanksgiving. When I thank the Lord, and I really do it, not as some sort of obligation, but because it's coming out of a heart of gratitude, when I really thank the Lord, then He is magnified in the eyes of other people, isn't He? And this is what we're to do. This is why the Bible says amazingly in the book of 1 Thessalonians, the Bible says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you. For you, for us who know Christ. It's God's will for us that we give thanks in everything. This is why one of the marks of a spirit-filled church or individual is that that person is in everything always giving thanks. Paul uses three different grammatical mechanisms to emphasize that point three straight times. Then the writer of Hebrews says, through Him, through Jesus Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess His name literally is what the text says. For some reason, many of the translations, including the New American Standard, translates it, thank Him. Thank Him for His name. Sure, we should thank Him, but confession is more accurate, I believe, and more powerful. Here's why. What is the name that Jesus has received as a result of His complete obedience to His assignment when He came to earth, became one of us? We are approaching, celebrating the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And Jesus died. That's what it cost Him. He sacrificed, and as a result of His obedience to the Lord, in the book of Philippians, the Bible says God gave Him the name that is above every name. What is that name? Lord. What does Lord mean? Lord means sovereign. It means king. That's what Jesus is. That's what Jesus must become in our lives if we are to call Him Savior too. It's not one, it's both. So we give thanks to Him. And David does this in verse 1, I will give thanks to you with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. Now let's stop here just a moment. This matter of giving praises to God before the gods with a little g has been problematic perhaps for you when you've read that. And if you go back to Psalm 86, we get some kind of elaboration that helps us to understand what David meant here. In Psalm 86, 82 really, excuse me, 82 verse 6, but we'll begin with verse 1. This is not a psalm of David, but of a man named Asaph, who is the human instrument in the Holy Spirit's hand to pen many of the psalms. Verse 1 says, God takes His stand in His own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly? Now He's talking to these rulers who are judging 
partially and show partiality to the wicked. Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God's and all of your sons of the Most High. He's talking to judges. And God, not just in the history of Israel, but when you read Romans 13, for instance, you see He places people in authority to maintain order. And in this particular instance, I believe, going back to Psalm 138, 1, where David says, I sing praises to thee before the gods. He's talking about humans who sit on behalf of God in places of leadership and judgment. They don't necessarily even know God, but God in His sovereignty does that. He goes on to say in verse 2 of Psalm 138, I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. That's something to be thankful for, isn't it? God's loving kindness. His mercies are new every morning. The word translated mercies in many of our Old Testament copies of the book of Lamentations in the Old Testament is the same word that's used here. Hesed is the word in Hebrew. Your loving kindness. We thank you for this. It's new every day. There's no pulling the plug on your loving kindness. And then also the truth. Remember when Jesus was standing before Pilate? And Pilate mused, what is truth? Little did he know that truth was standing right in front of him, personified in the person of Jesus. Little did he know that Jesus had said, truly, truly, I say to you, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and the truth will set you free. And then after this conversation with his disciples saying that in the 8th chapter of John, he says in a prayer to his Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We are to thank the Lord and we could never thank Him enough for His loving kindness. If there would be degrees of gratitude, I would have to say for His truth because we know of His loving kindness because of His truth. We have been given the Holy Spirit who is the Spirit of truth. He's the one who authored the Scripture. He's the one who interprets the Scripture. He's the one who indwells us. He's the one who empowers us. We can be grateful for Jesus Christ who is the truth, the Spirit who is the author of truth, and the Spirit who animates us and empowers us to be whom God created us to be. Let's look at verse 3. On the day I called you, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. We don't know the exact day which David had in mind. There were many. It could have been with Goliath. It could have been in other battles he had with the Philistines once he became king. It could have been any number of times. But what we do know is he learned to call on the Lord. And he didn't reserve his prayer life, by the way, for moments of crisis like we typically do. He was a man who says about himself, this is amazing, it just came to my mind. I wish I could tell you the exact reference. I'll try to look it up and give it to you next week. I know you'll be dying to know where it is. <laughs> but 
I think it's around the 111th Psalm or something like that, 110th. But this is, this is what he says. He says, I am a man of prayer. That's quite a statement, isn't it? But literally in the Hebrew, this is exactly what it says. I am prayer. His whole life was lived in the context of relating to the Father, relating to the Lord. He prayed to Him constantly. He knew what Paul wrote about when Paul said, pray without ceasing. And he cried out for strength. Do you ever find yourself in such a situation when you are in trouble? Look at verse 7. I'm going to skip ahead just a moment. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. Does the Lord revive us? Yes, He does. And the word revive is give me life. Actually, save my life, Lord. Help me to thrive in the middle of this problem, this difficulty. You will stretch forth your hand against the, against the wrath of my enemies. How wonderful. This is what God says. Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. And we know what Ephesians 3 says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask of think, we come before the Lord. He says, you're my children. I love you. You're precious in my sight. And when you're in trouble, cry out to me. And I will answer. And God will be glorified in that. Do you agree that David glorified the Lord by thanking Him? It's one way we glorify the Lord. There's a second way that's seen here in verses 4 and 5, and that is David's gratitude was a catalyst. It caused others to glorify the Lord too by thanking God the way David had. Look at verse 4. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth, when people hear the Word of God, it doesn't matter whether you're royalty or you're part of the hoi polloi. What the Word of God says is that when you hear the Word of God, does it do something to you? When God really speaks to you personally, when you are listening to the Word of God and He speaks to you, does that do something for you? Does that encourage you? Does that give you what you need to go forward with the situation in which you find yourself that's anything but inviting. Yes, it does. And they will sing of the ways of the Lord. These are the leaders of the world. Don't you long for that. I wish we had some leaders in this country who would have this heart. But it depends and begins with you and me. Because we have to be men and women who we, we may seem so insignificant, and in a way we are. The only significant, when it's all said and done, only significant one is Jesus Christ. But if we follow Him, and we love Him, and we adore Him, and we unashamedly thank Him and praise Him, it's going to create a tidal wave of change in any community. And it can begin with us as a church. That we don't just go through the motions when we gather here to worship. We really worship. We really thank the Lord. We really praise the Lord. And then when we go out into the community, this is the church gathered. You know what's going to happen in about 15 minutes, 20 minutes? We're going to be the church scattered. 
You're going to be scattered all over the city. Some of you are going out of this state. Some of you are going out of this country. And as you go, you are not alone. He lives in you by His Spirit. And He wants to speak through you. Before He says a word through you, He's going to speak so loudly by the aroma of Christ that's coming off of you. It exceeds any kind of perfume or cologne. It's that which refers to the person of Jesus and people don't even know why. But they're in the presence of someone who knows and loves the Lord. And in effect, they're in the presence of the Lord Himself because He's in you and He's in me. We need to understand the power of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the fruit of the Spirit. And people will be changed, irrevocably changed, by the Gospel of Jesus Christ lived out and then shared. And look at the last line of verse 6. For great is the glory of the Lord. That's an understatement. For though the Lord is exalted, yet He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. In Proverbs 6, the Bible says there are six things which God hates, seven which are an abomination to the Lord. Do you know what tops the list? Haughty eyes. What does that mean, haughty? We don't use that word. What does the word haughty mean? Snooty, proud, nose in the air, walking like you own the whole world, just being too big for your britches, basically. So what we know here is that God doesn't associate with those who are haughty. He knows them from afar. This is why the Bible says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that in due time He may exalt you. Do you know what the biggest weapon we have against the enemy is? It's counterintuitive. It's humility. And I want to clarify what that means. I think the best definition I've ever heard was from a man named Fred Smith, not to be confused with the founder of FedEx, but another Fred Smith who was himself a, an excellent businessman, but a devout follower of Christ, a very wise man. He advised many people who were captains of industry. They wanted to have him on their team because of his wisdom. From where did his wisdom come? It came from the Lord. It came, as Dom mentioned earlier, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so it came from that relationship. And this is what he said about humility. Humility is not denying the power you have, but acknowledging its source. What is the source of our power? It's the power of the Holy Spirit, but it's not an in-your-face kind of power. It's something quite different and much more powerful and effective than that approach. That's the world's approach. Intimidation. But it's humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. The Bible says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. The word translated selfish ambition was a word which was used to describe canvassing for office. We're not to be people who are interested in making an impression on other people for our sake, but on other people for God's sake and for Christ's sake and really for their sake so they could come to know the Lord. We're to treat each other 
as we would want others to treat us. The Christian life is awesome, isn't it? In its potential. We who know Jesus have the power to let him rule in our lives. We give that to him. We say, Lord, I submit myself to you. I honor you. Please use me as you see fit. Here's the last thing that David talks about that's important in the whole area of glorifying the Lord. And I hope you understand that there's a certain amount of artificiality that any preacher or teacher employs, not playing fast and loose with the text, what's there, but in trying to divide it up in a way that we can remember some of it if we want to review it later. We've seen two things so far that David did that led to the glory of God. What was the first one? He thanked the Lord. And we saw all the things he thanked the Lord for. And then his thanking of the Lord gave reason to others to thank the Lord. But here's the other thing. The last line of verse 7. And your right hand will save me. I wish we had time. And I would advise you, if you really want to do a good study that will encourage you, just Google the right hand of God. And you will exhaust yourself looking up all the references. But this is what the Bible says in Exodus 15, 6. Moses wrote a song, a hymn of praise to the Lord. And he said, your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. What had God just done? He had parted the Red Sea. And he had wiped out the most powerful army in the world without as we would say, a shot being fired. God killed them all. And God had told them before they went across, I'm talking about Israel now, going through that way that had been created by the wind blowing and opening this big, big highway and then closing it back over. This is what God said, the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be still. Wait on the Lord. That makes no sense, but that's what the Scripture says. Let God do your fighting for you. Do what God calls you to do. Don't be afraid to do whatever He calls you to do. But understand that He's the one who has the power to win with His right hand. My right hand will save you is what God says to us. Where are you if you know the Lord? Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them. They shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. Where are you? Jesus has said earlier in the Gospel of John in the sixth chapter, He says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never throw away. You're never going to be thrown away by the Lord. If you know the Lord, He's promised, I will never throw you away under any circumstance. I will never throw you away. There will be people who will come to try to snatch you out of my hand. They're not going to be able to do it because I have saved you by my work on your behalf. Then we come to the key idea here, at least from my viewpoint. Verse 8, the ESV says, The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. David, remember who he is. The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Does that astonish you? That the Lord 
who's created all inhabitants of the earth, seven billion or so, seven billion, he's capable of having a relationship with an individual. That seems absurd. When you stop to think about it, I said, no way. Why would he want a relationship with me? I don't know. But he loves us by his own sovereign choice. And he does have such a relationship with us as we yield to his lordship, his sovereignty. We submit to him. And that's what happens. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. I'm claiming that promise for me. I hope whatever life I have left will be lived in the consciousness that God has a plan for me. And I hope you do too. Look at Psalm 139, 16. The last three lines of it. And in your book, they were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. We've got today. We've got right now. We don't know how many days we have going forward. We have today, and it was written in His book. I can't go into detail as to what that book is. There's a lot of speculation, but there's not enough information for us to know exactly what is in that book, or if there's a book on each one of us. It's possible, but it's in His book. And what does it say? God had a plan for me when He created me. When He created me in my mother's womb, and same for you. And when He recreated us, wow. He recreated us. And the, the Bible tells us that in recreating us, He created us to do good works which He prepared in advance for us to do. That our lights would shine before man in such a way that men will be drawn to Christ. This is how we glorify the Lord. We live in that dependent relationship in the Lord. What does it mean, in essence, practically speaking, to glorify the Lord? It means to submit to Him, put Him at the center of our lives. Now look carefully here. Many, if not most of us, uh, probably live this way or have lived this way. If we look at our lives as a pie chart, and we have a chunk of it, which we might put the word religion in. And then we've got all other aspects like money, work, family, any number of things. Here's the way most Christians live. You're abnormal if you don't live this way or haven't lived this way. Most Christians say, I'm going to devote this slice of my life to God. And then I'm going to live any way I want to the rest of the time. That's not real Christianity. Don't fool yourself. If you understand what it means to really honor the Lord and have a goal to glorify, put Him right square dab in the middle and let Him know you welcome Him into every area of your life, your money, your family, your work, your hobbies, your church life, everything. And therefore, we can glorify the Lord in whatever we do. Isn't that what the Scripture says? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We would not be commanded that if that were not a possibility. And the possibility of it comes back to the fact that Christ is in us. That's what Paul writes in Colossians 1.27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
Jesus lives in us if we know Him. And as we trust Him, He will accomplish His purpose through our lives. May that be our heart as individuals. And may that be the heart of this church, that we would be a church that doesn't just play at it. We really trust the Lord so that He can be glorified in us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this morning, the opportunity to worship You. We pray that our worship would be something that would indeed honor You, that You would be glorified by. And then in just a few moments as we scatter all over El Paso, help us to walk in the awareness that You are with us and You're in us and You want to glorify Yourself through us. Keep that in our hearts and our minds as we follow you from here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.